we are still in the book of Colossians. We are about to embark in the book of Colossians on what is probably the central text of the book. This is the most important part of this book. It is the thing that if you were to ask people what they think of when they think of the book of Colossians, this passage would be it for very, very good and profound reasons. So we are about to enter in on something that is majestic and holy. It is most clearly a poem. We don't know whether Paul wrote it or whether it was an old Christian hymn. A lot of scholars tend to believe that it is an old Christian hymn, that even before Paul wrote the book to the Colossians, this hymn existed, that Paul has picked it up and he is going to use it for his own purposes. It is a poem or a hymn to the glory of Jesus Christ as who he is as God. It is a very what we would call high Christology. That means that it makes a lot out of Jesus Christ and it will make him very clearly God. So as we come to it, we want to understand this aright and do justice to the passage. In order to do that, I am going to ask for some patience on your end. Southern Baptists, we oftentimes find ourselves at odds with tradition. But I'm going to tell you that tradition is not a horrible thing. We need to have tradition. We need to have a foundation on which to build. So while we do not stand on tradition alone, we don't have tradition sola, right? We don't stand on tradition alone. We have to start somewhere. It would be imprudent for us to begin theology all over again every generation. So we stand on tradition. We want to see what that tradition says about Jesus and his divinity. However, we are not people who stand on tradition alone. So we will take that tradition and we believe, treat it according to sola scriptura. Sola scriptura does not mean, please understand this, it does not mean that we only use scripture. When we say scripture alone, that doesn't mean that we ignore everything else and only focus on scripture, okay? Let's be very clear about that. What it does mean is this though. When we view things in light of tradition, our final judgment and authority comes from what we make of Scripture. So in that sense, we don't believe that we stand on tradition alone, but we judge that tradition in accordance with Scripture. Where it is found good and whole, we accept it with amens and hallelujahs, thanking God for the people that he has put in place over centuries and millennia to help us rightly understand these things. Where we find cracks... We, we fix them, we patch them up, and we make the foundation sound again according to Scripture. So that when we say sola scriptura, what we mean by that is authority finally and ultimately only comes from the Word. That does not mean we do not rely upon tradition. Ultimately, we are much like contractors who looking at tradition look for cracks in the foundation. And when we find cracks, we fix them and we fix them so that they are in accordance with the pattern that has been laid down for us in the word of God. And therefore, today, before we go to scripture, I want to tell you what the foundation of the church since its inception has been according to the gospel of Jesus Christ about his divinity and the relation of him to the Trinity. Because as we talk about God being divine and God being Trinity, we cannot do that outside of the fact, we cannot talk about the divinity of Jesus Christ as the pre-existent Son of God outside of the church's declaration that God exists in Trinity. And so, if you would, please be 
patient and attentive as we will talk about the Trinity this morning. I want to also give you a bit of caution. The Word of God often compares itself to food. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are to stand on Scripture. When we come together, we believe that we are eating spiritual food. When we come to feast on the Word. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes that is a nice, smooth soup, okay? It's easy to digest, and you can just take it in. Sometimes it comes in the form of a steak, okay? Now, my kids, it's one of my parental failings as a parent, don't really care for steak. You will pray for them. They will... <laughs> They will be converted. My daughter actually, Lily, likes the taste of steak, but her problem is a textural one. She's got to chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it. We're, we're trying to build up those jaw muscles so she can get through it a little bit quicker. Actually, it's cheaper this way. Maybe let us be vegetarians. Part of the th- reason why people don't want to eat better food when it comes to the word is because it will require chewing out of you. It will require you to not only take in what I'm giving you, but it will require you to stew on it, to chew it, to make much of it. You will have to do thinking. You will have to do work on your own. You're going to have to do that. So today is a meal. It will be steak. I will not make any apologies for that. You are going to get, hopefully, really perfectly cooked, tenderized, beautiful steak that is delicious for you. And then next week, this is really annoying, then next week, I'm okay for a little bit. Then next week, we get dessert, okay? So the dessert that's coming next week is brilliant. It is fantastic. It is the tiramisu of all passages. And for those of you who don't like tiramisu, go get some. It is the best dessert ever. So next week is tiramisu, but you've got to eat your steak first, and it will only make... Sorry. It will pass all burdens aside. Um, it will make the meal today all the better, okay? So we're only going to tackle the first three verses of Colossians today, and then next week we will tackle the last three verses of this passage in Colossians. The first thing we want to talk about is the nature of the Trinity. If you look at your pastoral notes, on the back there is a diagram. That is not a Wiccan symbol. That is actually a diagram that is meant to help us understand what the Trinity is, and I will be referring to it, okay? Um, Because we need to understand the difficulty inherent in the Trinity before we can understand the beauty of what Paul says here in the book of Colossians. The first thing we are going to start with when we talk about the nature of the Trinity is that God is one in nature. God is one in nature. He is not but he is one in nature. Sometimes we use the word essence, substance, ontology. There's all these other, all of these other words that we use. However, it means that he is one in his very nature. Whatever you think of when you think of nature, what is it for God to be God? That is what he is. There is one nature. There is one nature that is shared and equally distributed and fully present in all three people of the Trinity. It is not just that God is the same, but that Father, Son, and Spirit are fully God. So what you have there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as the three circles on the outside. Notice the Father is 
God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. They are not parts of God. They are not distinct manifestations of God. They are not separate gods themselves. One of the reasons why we can't believe that they are three separate gods is because Scripture simply won't allow us to believe that. In Deuteronomy 6.4, the most basic affirmation of every Jewish school child, the prayer that they would learn from the time that they were as young as they could be, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now you could say, like other heretics have done in the past, what this means is that God the Father is one in the Old Testament, but then we, we have a revelation of a new God in the New Testament, and that is Jesus Christ, and then finally the Holy Spirit, but that is three gods. And James 1.29, excuse me, 2.19, upholds that if you believe that God is one, you do well. The full and total affirmation of all of scripture is that God is one, unified in will and essence and ontology and nature. He is inseparable. There are no divisions in God. This also means that he cannot be divided up as a third. Like you cut an apple pie into three pieces. Most of you cut them into way too many pieces. Apple pie needs to be in nice big pieces. So you cut that apple pie into three pieces. And what we can think of, sometimes when we think of God, we think of Trinity, we think of all of them being like a third of the fullness of God, okay? So they're all each individually God, and they're all part of the one God, but they're distinct parts of the one God. That also is not what we are saying. We are saying that they are unified in all ways. There is no division. There is no distinction. There is one God. However, we also say that God is three in person. I remember having a conversation with a oneness Pentecostal gentleman who I worked with at Papa John's, and him and I, while we were folding boxes one night, got into a very heated argument about what a person was, and I felt very ill-equipped to talk to him about that, to the point where he pointed at a pizza box and said, is this a person? And I said, no. And that was about as far as the conversation got. Because um, once, once you're at the point where you're calling a pizza box a person, the, the conversation has pretty much come to an end. So we need to be clear about what we mean when we say God is, is three in person. He's one in essence and nature, but he's, he's three in person. And what we mean by this more than anything else, what we mean about this is God Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit relate to one another as three distinct things three distinct people. They are in relationship with one another. Okay? So that Jesus prays to the Father. He asks the Father for things. Jesus quotes scripture to the Father. Lemai, lemai uh, sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes scripture to the Father. He does the will of the Father. God sends him in John 5. He says, I am doing the will of God my Father. He continually talks about that. He glorifies the Father. The Father, likewise, has a relationship with the Son. So on, in the baptism or in the transfiguration, God shows up and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He is talking about his Son. He's not talking about himself. So while they are unified and they are one, they are distinct. They relate to one another. There is one thing that I would really like to press upon you in all of this, and that is this. In the Trinity, there is a unified 
center and nature that all of them have, but each person relates to one another so that each one is the one God. Each one is the one God and all are fully the one God. Each one is the one God and they are all fully the one God. Okay. That is in a nutshell what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. Now, let us read from Paul's letter to the Colossians. By the way, let me back up for just a second. While we talk about each one is fully God and each one is the one God, we also know that the Father, if you look at the diagram again on the outside of it, it says the Father is not, and there are two lines coming off of that, the Father is not the Son and the Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is neither Father nor Son. So what we mean is that they are one in essence in nature, but they are also distinct in persons, and they cannot be confused together. Thus, God is ineffable. So we can, we can put our language together the best we can, and you are never going to completely understand the things that are being said about the Trinity. We're just never going to. But according to scripture and church tradition, this is the best that we have ever come to it. They are tri-unity, trinity. That is why we believe that. Now, the question becomes, can we get that from scripture? That is our issue. And thus we come to the book of Colossians, verses 15 through 20. Please read with me if you will. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. First thing we're going to talk about is the fact that Jesus is the image of God. That Jesus is the image of God. Typically when we talk about images, we think of physical likeness. So if we make an image of something, if we were going to make an image of this church, we would take a drawing of the church and we would color it in or paint it or whatever you have. We would, we would make an image of it. We typically think of this when we think of images in the Bible. So we say, hey, they've made an image of God. They think that God is a snake because they've made God into a snake. Or they think that God is a cow because they've made God into a cow. But here, it's clearly not a physical likeness that Paul is talking about. Although he uses the word image, it cannot be a physical likeness because what kind of God does Jesus image? Very clearly, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. So it's not that kind of image. It is not Jesus' physical characteristics that image God. What images God? Human beings image God. So in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over other creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He says, he made them in his image. And then what does he say? He doesn't say the physical appearance by which he made them, but he talks about the purpose and the rule and the authority that he gives to them. These are characteristics of God that human beings are to carry out in the world. Why is it that we are made in the image of God, or how are we made in the image of God? This says at least a couple of things. One, we are made in the image of God because we are made to rule over all created things. And secondly, we are made in the image of God because we are made male and female. The image of God is not in a physical representation, but it's by portraying the characteristics and the godliness of who God is. This is exactly why in Romans 1.23, after talking about, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, how they are all condemned because they've seen the power and the wisdom of God, but they have denied it. It says in verse 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and creeping things. We know this is wrong because God has said in Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Why did God say that? It's easy to think that he said that because he wanted the people to stay away from idols, which is true. He he wanted them to stay away from idols and that perhaps the making of these things would immediately sort of not picture him well. Remember that when the golden calf is set up, Aaron says something very interesting when he makes a golden calf. He puts a golden calf together and he says, this is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. It isn't that they're worshiping a different God. It's literally that they made God into a thing. Why is that a problem? It's not that the physical likeness is the problem. It's the fact that there is no image that we can make that will clearly portray the characteristics of God. So you make God into a cow or you make God into a little idol that you set up here, into the likeness of man. When you do that, what are you doing? Well, that image, even if you say this is Yahweh and he has all these characteristics, if you make him into the image of a cow, there's a real problem there because cows are, like, created, right? By its very picture, it cannot, it cannot display the full characteristics of God. No matter how much you talk about how good God is and you put all of the characteristics into that little idol, that image that you have made, no matter how well you do that, that image will still portray something that is antagonistic to the very nature of God. You cannot make an image of God. It will never carry his characteristics. Cows cannot be creators. Why don't we just pick something a little grander then? Let's, let's pick the sun. The sun's powerful. The sun has energy. It helps create grass. It grows. The, the Egyptians did this. They went and they said, what is the most powerful thing? Well, it's got to be the sun. Everything lives and breathes and dies by the sun. If the sun doesn't rise, we are in real trouble. We're in total darkness. That was one of the plagues, right? So the sun is really important. So why not pick something like the sun? Well, the sun has a lot of characteristics going for it. But it's not relating to you. It doesn't talk with you. It doesn't call you. It has no presence with you. 
Again, the characteristics of God cannot be shown by anything that he has created. He is both transcendent. He is above you and beyond you and outside of the scope of this world. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is always present and near. There is nothing in the world that can image that. And then Paul, the fool, turns around and says, Jesus Christ is the perfect and full image of God. He displays all of the characteristics of God fully, powerfully, and perfectly in all ways, shapes, manners, and forms. You cannot look at Jesus and not see God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side. Who is the only God at the Father's side? Who was with God in the beginning? The Word has made him known. When you see Jesus, you see God. Later in John 14.8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It sounds like a Moses type question. Show us your glory. Show us the Father. That's all we want from you. You you don't need to do all this other stuff. Just show us the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Isn't that interesting? He says, show me the Father. And Jesus says, you don't know who I am. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You want to know who the Father is. You want to know what God is. You look at me. Jesus is the image of God. And secondly, or thirdly, or whatever it is on your outline, Jesus is firstborn. That little word, firstborn of all creation, firstborn, has gotten many, many people into much, much trouble. Jehovah's Witnesses would look at something like that and they would say, ha, 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 Christians. Oh, geez. You guys don't understand that things that are born are like created, man. And so when we read something like firstborn, you can do what the NIV does. And the NIV says it's that he is supreme above all things. And that's well and good. And it's kind of true, they would say, but it doesn't get over the fact that he's firstborn. And if, if we are very honest, all of us should tr- struggle with that kind of language. Jesus is first born. Does that mean that he isn't very God of very God? Does that mean that we have messed up the Trinity and our understanding of Trinity? How are we supposed to understand the fact that he is first born? Well, it certainly does mean that he is supreme above all created things. Genesis, we'll read an extended version of this in 48, 13 through 14, and then we're going to skip down to 17 through 20. Joseph took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Clearly, firstborn there means born first. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
he shall also become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. In Jeremiah 31, 9, Ephraim is called God's firstborn. It means that he is preeminent. It means that he is supreme over all of his brothers. That is what the blessings were meant. That's why in the Genesis narrative, right, who gets the blessing, Jacob or Esau? It's Jacob. And why? Why? Because it should have gone to Esau. He was the first one out of the womb. He was firstborn. But God, in his providence, so that his purpose and election might continue, has switched the two to make Jacob receive the blessings of the firstborn. He is preeminent above his brother. Psalm 87, or excuse me, 89. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established in him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in, the, in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It means supreme. The very passage itself screams that it means supreme, because what happens directly after that? He's made everything. He's made everything. Nothing that we've said so far would Jehovah's Witnesses stand there and say, yeah, no. They would agree. It certainly does mean that Jesus is supreme over all things. Being born first means that. What do we mean by firstborn? We mean a couple of different things, and let's talk about what being born versus being created means, because Paul picks a specific word here that throughout the history of the church, we have continued to uphold. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus Christ was born, not created. This isn't language that we in the church have ever shied away from. It is perfectly acceptable, and I want to prove to you how wonderful it is to talk about how Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. When we talk about being created, we can talk about creation in two different ways. We create things differently than God creates things. God creates out of nothing. God speaks, and things that are not become ours. They make themselves by the power of God, they pop into existence. He needs nothing. In the beginning, there was God, and God created from nothing. He popped it into existence by the power of his word and that alone. You or I don't do that. If you can do that, please come see me. If you can't, welcome to the human race. You don't create like that. Do you create things? You certainly create things. What kind of things do you create? What kind of things do human beings make? Well, it's very clear. We take the stuff that is in the world and we make it distinct. We take ore from the ground and we make it into engines. We take dye from plants and make it into horizons. We take fabric, we weave it together and we make coats and jackets. We take the things that already are and we make them into distinct things and we say, we created that. We're not wrong in saying that. But that type of creation is inherently different than the creation of God making things from nothing. Hold on to that thought. Now, what do we mean when we say we gave birth to, or we beget, or we fathered? 
I say, I fathered Isaac. I will pick on my son because we're talking about fathers and sons. I fathered Isaac. So what does it mean when I say I fathered Isaac? Did that mean that I created him out of nothing? No. Even the most biologically based thing, we will talk that there is a miracle of God that happens there, but he is not stuff that has popped out of nothing. Cells came together, they multiplied, they grew, they divided, they multiplied, they grew, and they divided by taking in stuff that was around from mom's blood and now from 18 pancakes at a time, taking in the stuff from that which is around and making it into him. It takes the stuff that is there already and does what with it? Makes it distinct. And what did we say was the deal with the Trinity? One essence, three persons who are distinct from one another. What does it mean when Paul says that he is first born? He is not first created. He takes of that which already is the very nature of God and it makes it distinct. That is what we mean when we say he is first born. It is not creation. It is not out of nothing. It's out of God. He is born out of God, so he is what has already been in existence. And he is made distinct from that which is already in existence. Not different in substance, in ontology, in nature, in will. The same of all of that, but distinct in person. Just like my son has the exact same nature that I do, but he is distinct in person. So the Godhead he is the image of God because he has all of the full characteristics of God. And yet he is firstborn because he is distinct from the Father forever. Therefore, Jesus is Lord of creation. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He has made it because he is God. You go back to the Old Testament and you read, what does it mean for God to be God? What does it mean to set God aside and apart from everything else that has ever been made? What is the one thing or the things that sets him apart? And there's numerous and many, but we can point at a couple. In Isaiah 40, 41, 42, he is looking at these idols and he's saying, can the idols do this? Because God, me, Yahweh, not me, but Yahweh does these things. Can they declare the end from the beginning? Can they tell you what's going to happen? Because I am telling you what's going to happen, for I am God. I control everything. Are they redeemers for you? Have they promised to come down and deliver you? Because I have, for I am God. In chapter 40, verses 21 through 26, Isaiah writes this. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, 
that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number? Calling them all by name, by the greatness of their name. And Job, who says, I have been wronged by God. I, I am innocent of all the calamities that have befallen me. I am not sinful in this. If I had an audience before God, I would declare to God what has gone wrong. I would say to him, I am innocent of all doings, and I have been treated wrongly because of this. I do not deserve the destruction and the peril that has come upon me. When God finally shows up, he says this. I will only quote 11 verses. There's three or four chapters of this. Then the Lord God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who? Is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? And what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut the sea doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, this far you shall come no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. That is what makes God God. He is creator of all things. And because of that, he is powerful above them as well. Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he is writing them as babies in the faith, saying to them, you need to continue on with what you're doing. You need to avoid pitfalls. You need to hang on to Christ. The question is, for such new Christians in such a profoundly, profoundly antagonistic world, where their lives will be at threat, where persecution will come to them, what is going to hold them? How do we know that Christ can do everything that he has said? How do we know that God will keep us in Christ till the end? Are we not foolish for trusting him as we do? How will the Colossians stand firm? Have they put their faith in horses and chariots? Have they put their faith in a man who cannot deliver on what he has said? Have they put their faith in something that is misplaced? And Paul says, no. No, you have placed your faith in, as the Apostles' Creed would later say, very God of very God, God of God and the Lord of all creations. You have never misplaced your faith because God has made, Jesus Christ has made, the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and the powers. Who will come after you? Who is ever going to hurt you without his say-so? Who can damage you? Who can separate you from the love of God? Why does Paul write things like that? Because he knows that Jesus Christ holds you, and that is not a minor thing. He is God on high, and he has created you, and he has said that these things are true, and when God speaks, it happens. So how are the Colossians supposed to maintain faith? How are you supposed to maintain faith in light of everything that could go wrong in your life, from disease to persecution from your own failings and fallings as human beings. How are you to maintain that? Have you trusted in something that is weak and worthless, an elementary thing of the world that will wash away? And Paul says, no, you have placed your faith in very God of very God. The book of Revelation, 
in the fourth chapter depicts God as sitting high upon a throne, separated from all things in glory like no other. And then in the beginning of chapter 5, we read this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Now, without getting into all that that could be, I'm going to tell you, and you can ask me about it later, that scroll is not the prophecy of things that are going to happen. That scroll, rather, is the very will and testament of God. He is holding in his hand the unfailing plan of the world. Who, given that God is high and mighty, given that he is distant and separated from human beings by sin, given that he is exalted above all things, who dares approach his throne and say, I will do the fullness of your will. I will carry out what needs to be done I am worthy before God to do his plan, to carry his plan to fruition. And he looks around and he sees no one. That means, folks, that the will of God will not be carried out. The will of God will not be done. The world will dissolve. So John says, I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Says, I looked, there is no carrying out of God's will. His people will not be redeemed. His acts of salvation will never come to pass. Satan has won. Everything that we have been promised has fallen apart. If that scroll isn't open, history unravels. God is a liar and John is dead. And so he weeps, not because he can't see the future, but because he knows the future. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus Christ, because he is a very God, a very God, because he submitted himself to the full wrath of God and the weight of God, and he has conquered death, is able to enact the will of God for all time. Because he is in trinity with God and the Holy Spirit. He is very God of very God and yet distinct from God the Father. He is able to do all things that he desires and that God has in his will. He will bring you through. He will carry you to the day of completion. We know this not because Jesus Christ is a great dude. That might be true. That's not why. We know this not because the things that he said were good and they point to a nice and virtuous life. It's true. They do. We know this because he is God on high. And God does what he wills. Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our devotion and our praise and our worship precisely because to do otherwise is to blaspheme. 
to give that worship to anybody else is to de denigrate God. It is to place it in an image that does not correctly picture God, but Jesus Christ is very God of very God. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn of all creation. He made it all. To him belongs all glory and power and worship. Let us do that. Let us pray. Father God, we are in awe this morning of who you are, and these inadequate words, these feeble attempts to make your glory shine forward, Lord, may they simply spark us to plunge deeper into who you are and your greatness and your mercy and your care over us. Let it strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ that we have not put our hope in simply a man as great as he might be. We have not placed our hope in, in carry chariots or horses. We have not placed our hope on the things of this world. We have not placed our hope on getting bright and shiny things here, but we have placed our hope on God. And therefore, we will never fail. We will never be let down. For it is God who holds us. It is your Son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us. It is his kingdom that we have been delivered to. Who will lay a hand upon your anointed? Let God be praised for all that he has done in Father and in Son and in Holy Spirit. Amen.